the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 55, and I'm your host, Yelena, and joining me for the show is my co-host, Pontus Bokman. С наступающим Новым Годом, друзья! Я кисунтайт! No, sorry, I don't know. I, hi, Heysan, Heysan. I mean, I mean, Heysan, Heysan. So I was, I was trying to be, I was trying to be clever, Pontus. I, I said uh, everybody, uh, I sort of congratulated everybody with upcoming New Year celebration because. All right. Yeah. Oh, I... Shit. Oh no, no, no. That's not right because it, it would have been already in the past. Yes, it's in the past. <laughs> in the future, it will be in the past, but that's fine. <laughs> That's fine. Happy New Year to everybody. I think... Uh, Happy yeah. New Year to everybody. I don't think many of our listeners know Russian anyway. So no, that's, that's fine. fine. That's perfectly okay. Yeah, how weird. We're kind of recording in the in the past, and so it's not yet Happy New Year, mm. or New Year for that matter. But hey, here's for a great 2017. Okay, let me just tell you, I don't think... No, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say it can't get any worse, but <laughs> these, are, these are normally like last words yeah. before something really bad happens. Yeah. Well, I think in the future we have one positive thing coming, and that is that Andras will come back to the show. He's, <laughs> he's just... We gave him the week off. Yep. He's, gonna uh, Italy he's in uh, Italy or somewhere, and he's Italy, apparently that's singing. Right, yeah. And we didn't want to hear that on the show, so we said, okay, go away to Italy, do your singing, and then you're welcome back in the next show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so that'll just be two of us. Mm. You know, we'll try to make it as good as ever. Well, as good as it can be, but we'll be here. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And hopefully both of us had a great New Year celebration, eh, Pontus? <laughs> we will have had. We will have had. I mean, I'm a, I'm hoping to have uh, have had definitely. Yeah. And yeah, please um, continue uh, all to all our, our listeners. Um, you know, we're, we're wishing you the great New Year's uh, 2017. Please continue listening to our podcast and spread the word. Mm -hmm. um, and give us any feedback um, to try to improve the show. Absolutely. So how was your, how was your, I know you don't, you say you don't celebrate Christmas, but how was your Christmas period, whatever you call it? Oh, Christmas period. Oh, the, the non-celebration. Yes. This, this is, this is the thing. I've, I've already like moved on. What Christmas? Uh, great. I mean, it's normally just, uh, we call it champagne day. So we just buy a bunch of champagne, nice food that we don't particularly need to cook and stay in bed all day and it's just wonderful um uh, me and my husband um watch movies the compulsory uh, viewing of love actually of course happened um and i have to say i have ticked yet another box for the uh all-time favorite christmas movies which was miracle on 34th street mm. um it was okay um i can say that i've watched it um it made me cringe in many many places uh but then i still was able to enjoy it. Okay. Um, I remember last year we watched another classic called um, "It's a Wonderful Life." Yes, the, the the American one with James Stewart. Yeah, the black and white. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's one of my yeah, favorites. Yeah, and that was so, it's, it's corny. It was, it's old. It's very. Oh, but, but it's but such I a like beautiful it. story. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, very it's nice. a beautiful story, yeah, and yeah. I and actually I didn't even cringe once. Um, oh. It was it was it was really lovely and. But this this miracle did really did not get. I don't know. I didn't get. Have you seen it? No, Pontus? I haven't. I haven't. Uh, yeah. you... It's just interesting to watch all these classics that people talk about, you know, over the holidays, mm. um, and get kind of acquainted with, with what's gone on. Because mm. obviously, being gr grown up in a post-Soviet era, you know, I missed on all the classics of Christmas apart from Russian classics. <laughs> what are the big Russian classics? Please enlighten us. Uh, well, there is a. One of the biggest Russian movies that everybody always watches over the New Year's period is called um Stalin the Red Nose Reindeer? No. <laughs> no. I imagine. No, it's about uh uh four friends who always go to sauna every year. Now this is a very hard concept to explain because sauna is rush in Russia is something different from any way you would experience normally. It's a gathering of naked men in this massive building where they all um, hit each other with the tree branches. It's really hard to explain. I don't know if anybody who ever experienced Russian sauna, they could probably 
guess, you know, say, oh, yeah, I know what, he, what she means. But anyway, they drink beer and vodka and mix it all together and get really drunk. So anyway, this is the tradition that those four friends had. And they went to Tucson and they had all these adventures over the New Year's. And it was really funny and exciting. And we would watch it every year. It doesn't really, it's not a very good advertisement for <laughs> Russian cinema. <laughs> all right. No, I just What not. about you? Well, <laughs> well I have... How was you? My, my, my mother was born in Finland, so I, I know a little bit about saunas. So I, I'm you familiar with the I mean? concept. With, yeah. yeah, you know where they, where they hit themselves with um, yes. branch trees and it, it kind of opens up your pores and you emerge from the sauna looking ridiculously red. Yeah. And like all... Like my dad loves... This is one of his favorite things of all times. He, he probably would spend hours in the sauna. I'm sure it's not good for your heart. <laughs> no. But, yeah. All right. But anyways... So yeah, I was just asking how how was your how was your holiday with your family because I know you were quite excited about the presents. Oh and... yes, it was very good. Uh, I was uh, dressed up as uh, Santa Claus as usual. I saw you. It was so yeah. awesome. Yeah, did you see me on Facebook? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mother put it on Facebook. So and yeah, uh, so all the kids were <laughs> were you know beside themselves and. Uh, Everybody was happy, and then there was snaps and very good uh, food, and I think yeah. it was a big success. Excellent. <laughs> well, okay, I know it sounds like a corny question, but did you get something that you didn't expect to get in terms of presents? No, because I buy my own presents. Well, you did mention you bought yourself a present, but then I thought you, you might get something from somebody I, else. Actually, I did yeah, but... get a few things, very nice things from my, my daughters, and uh, oh, just nice. small things, but... but Good and uh, I, 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 you know, I appreciate it. They were very. Yeah, nice. I think. Yeah, I think in the present, this is when I can t t totally say that the size doesn't matter. <laughs> it's not about <laughs> how small or big the present is. Yeah. It's about how much thought one puts in the present. So. Yeah. Very nice. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Well, um, hopefully, Andres uh, had a great Christmas celebration as well. Hope so. Uh, well, I'm sure he'll tell us later, and uh, we'll crack on with the uh, with the show. Mm. Today, I want to talk about what happened on the second of January, eighteen sixty. It's a very interesting non-discovery. I didn't know how to call it of a um, planet called Vulcan. It uh, was announced by uh, Académie des Sciences in Paris that this planet was discovered. Um, but, uh, however, later on it transpired that it was all a bunch of lies. Um, well, no, it wasn't just a bunch of lies. It, it, it was a misunderstanding and there was never uh, such planet that existed. And, of course, uh, some of our listeners will know that uh, Vulcan is the... Um, fictional planet in the Star Trek universe where Spock was from. Absolutely, yeah. Yes. So the Vulcan was thought to be a small hypothetical planet that was uh, proposed to exist in an orbit between Mercury and the Sun. And it was thought to exist because it was uh, there was an attempt to explain uh, peculiarities uh, of uh, Mercury's orbit and um, the French mathematician Urbain Le Verrier hypothesized that they were the result of another planet, which he later named Vulcan. At the time, it was a very uh, workable theory. And in fact, as soon as it's been announced by leading scientists um, of the day that this uh, planet exists, many people uh, claimed to have observed this planet uh, with their telescopes. And um, back in the day, apparently, quite a lot of people had telescopes in their backyard. Uh, yeah, so we're talking about 1860s, maybe. Well, I don't know. I guess by that point, telescopes kind of developed quite considerably. Mm. Not only did this discovery make absolute sense within the mathematical framework of Newton's theory, it's how scientists uh, managed to figure out that um, Neptune had to be there based on the wobbles of the orbit of Uranus just a few years before. So they kind of followed the same pattern, the same path of how they viewed the world at the time. And they said, well, okay, we've discovered this one planet and it made total sense and kind of uh, fitted into the framework. And now there's another planet. Of course, it's, you know, it's all working out really, really quite nicely. The self-deception uh, comes in that over the next 20 years, people believed they saw specks of light 
uh, that corresponded to what they thought Vulcan should look during an eclipse. These were not just amateurs, but men like professional uh, scientists, like Urban Joseph Le Verrier that I've mentioned earlier, uh, the most famous astronomer in the world and director of the Paris Observatory. Imagine if somebody like that come on, uh, well, I was going to say come on on TV, but announce to the whole world that there is a new planet. Of course, you'd, you'd probably follow his words and, uh, well, trust the, his opinion. Yes, yes of course. <laughs> and he also, just a few years before, discovered Neptune. So, actually, the whole theory or the the way that this uh, discovery was later discredited happened um, with the um, help of Albert Einstein. Always to the rescue, Einstein. I know, yes. As the story goes, Einstein's theory of relativity explains the same phenomena that people observed, but does so with completely different kind of structure or picture than Isaac Newton. And in Newton's theory, gravity is a property that leaps across the space between two bodies, a force that pulls on you. Einstein didn't just say, my numbers are better. He said, you have to fundamentally change that picture of gravity, that understanding of what the property of reality are. And by saying that, he basically uh, showed and proven that they didn't have to have that planet there to explain whatever was observed in the sky. And what does the story of the Vulcan teaches us? Well, I think it shows us how hard it is to understand what nature is telling us and how hard it is to understand when nature says no. So there is this famous phrase that a, s a single brute fact can undermine the most beautiful theory. But that's not how it worked for Vulcan. And it's still not how it works. Until you have a framework that allows you to see that there is an alternative to, to what you thought before, you can't easily assimilate new facts. Hmm. And people kept discovering Vulcan because the way they saw the world required Vulcan to be there. And it took Albert Einstein to prove the framework in which Vulcan became not only non-existent, but unnecessary. And I think it's the beauty of science. Yeah. Um, it, it, it didn't matter that one of the most prominent scientists of the time announced something that later happened to be not there. But the new discoveries... Um, helped us to understand better of, you know, why we made this mistake and to see the world, or, or this particular, obviously, instance, um, for what it really was. Yeah, I love this little story. There's uh, obviously a lot more in it, a lot more background on, on uh, uh, Einstein's work, but it's just a little illustration um, on how scientists can be wrong and how they can correct themselves and how in the end um the truth wins yeah yeah <laughs> also i want to also i want to think you know. yeah but that's how science so, works i mean you, you do the best yeah. with what you have and then somebody yeah. later comes in and say hey this is not how it works you don't have to have this yeah. planet it, it, it all works out if you apply this model instead and then say oh yeah we yeah. were wrong and and then science yeah. corrects itself and it moves on yeah to uh, and, better knowledge. And it also was quite interesting to read how uh, people followed this opinion of the, the prominent scientist and how they kind of said, of course, yeah, I can see it. You know, they, they, all, they all physically could prove that this planet existed where there was nothing there and they could probably even maybe, you know, d d imagine certain things in the sky because obviously it's far away. Yeah, and, yeah, and even see it. See so they thought they saw it, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you could probably make out shapes. I don't know what they've seen in their telescopes. And they go, oh, yeah, that's where it is, you know, explaining it. Um, maybe a bit like seeing face on the moon. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> did some, did somebody saw all sorts of, sorts of things on the moon, didn't they? Shapes and faces. Oh, and yeah. Things. But yes, so that's, I think it's a really great story. Um, and it happened, happened on a uh, 2nd of January, the day of our, when the, our podcast is released. So that's a, you know, Great coincidence. Oh, good. Very interesting. There we go. Let's quickly cover some events between the 2nd of January and the 8th of January. There's only four, so we'll be really, really quick. Hmm? Don't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll start on Wednesday, the 4th of January. Um, uh, there's an event happening next door in Greenwich. Lies, damn lies and statistics. How we get science coverage wrong with David um, Robert Grimes. Um, I'm sure we've advertised that event before, um, but it's an interesting topic. Over to you, Pontus. 
<laughs> on uh, Tuesday the 5th, we have in Göteborg the Epiphany Pub with uh, the Swedish skeptics. On In Sweden, the 6th of uh, January is a holiday, so they're celebrating. The, this is a religious holiday, but they find it funny to, to, uh, to celebrate the religious holidays, even if they're not really <laughs> religious. <laughs> yeah. And then oh, in Teesside, um, there will be Skeptics in the Pub um, on the same day, 5th of uh, January. And uh, it will be about modern media and how to survive it with Graham Smith, about many myths and legends that are generated by newspapers, news uh, magazines, TV news. I-, I like how they they call it myths and legends. It's a very nice way to put it, isn't mm-hmm. it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then on Friday, the 6th, uh, in Delft, in the Netherlands, there will be a social skeptics in the pub. And I think that's all we have for, for the week. It's a slow week. I think um, most skeptics are on holiday. Yeah. Yeah, not a lot of things going on. Yep. So apparently, um, thousands of researchers across Germany are bracing for the likelihood that after the 31st of December, they won't have an online access to hundreds of journals produced by the Dutch publishing giant Elsevier. Negotiations about a massive collective deal with the company uh, stranded earlier this month, and many German institutes seem determined not to budge, even if it complicates the lives of their researchers. So there was a consortium of hundreds of universities, uh, technical schools and research institutes that joined together in 2014 to form a project deal to negotiate new nationwide arrangement with Elsevier and other publishers for online access to journals. And um, the formal talks began in August. And the stated goal was to draft a contract that would go into the effect from January 2017. More than 60 participating organizations have since cancelled their current subscription. Or on December 2nd, the, um, the science organization in Germany, uh, which coordinated the deal, released a statement saying that Elsevier's initial offer did not meet its requirement for open access and then the company was asking too much money. Now, this is where I really have an issue with this. I think it's this whole deal's ethics, I guess, in a way. So obviously this publishing company has got a lot of power and a lot of uh, market share for for, uh, publishing papers. And of course now they're trying to squeeze um, the uh, organizations to pay them more money. And I I really think this shouldn't be access to uh, journals and, um, and published research shouldn't be about whether you have enough money to pay subscription or not and unfortunately obviously it all came down to it and uh, other than just uh, stamping my foot on the floor and saying i'm not happy about that i don't (laughs) see how anything else can be (laughs) what can be done about this situation i'm hoping that they can come to some sort of agreement but it will be a shame if they don't um like like I mentioned before, that they, they it seems like they they're even saying they're gonna do it. They, they might even cancel operation even if it complicates their lives, because of course there are other sources that you can access researches and published papers. But more sources you have, better science you can produce. I can imagine, and and better information you can have at the tip of uh, of your fingers. So, fingers crossed, because that's what we do as skeptics. <laughs> the negotiations will come to a good ending and the uh, agreement will be reached. But it's just uh, really um, upsets me when uh, yeah. the, the greed of the big companies takes uh, But I think there's a, a over. Th- an interesting parallel here to when music became free on the internet, basically free, with Spotify mm-hmm. and other things, or iTunes was the first big international thing. When, yeah, but and it's the same, and also with books, you know, it's easier to spread books now. You don't need the middleman anymore, and maybe we've yeah. come to the pl- to the time where where research doesn't need to be hosted by by for profit companies anymore, and you can release yeah. it directly from one re- researcher to another through the internet, of course, and the, the new technology. The the only thing I see that is problematic here is the peer review because that costs money and if you as a company host if you're a magazine and you host uh, you have the 
you want to publish the research, but you want to have it peer-reviewed first, and that costs money, somebody needs to pay for that. But you don't necessarily have to pay Elsevier for that, because they are an aggregator of of these uh, research. But I don't know where it will all end. It's very important Mm. that we do still can afford peer review, Mm. but it's also very important that access to research becomes available to everybody who needs it yeah yeah definitely i mean um so we'll keep an eye on the developments with that and if there's anything new that will become available in the new years we'll keep you posted Mm -hmm. yeah i'm sure there will be developments the question is how it will end yeah yeah so um there are a few european countries who have uh, had to sign uh, an agreement with elsevier and accepted whatever deal that the Elsevier wanted. But uh, I think it looks like Germany <laughs> is, does not want to don't, budge. They don't want to pay. So interesting. All right. There you go. On another news item, we have talked before about how the churches in, Scandina- in the Scandinavian countries are losing members, which indicates dropping religiousness in, in the north of Europe. And now it seems that we can look at the Netherlands to a s- similar development. This is not about membership into the churches, but there's a survey that's showing that uh, less than uh, uh, 50% currently in the Netherlands say that they are religious in any kind of way. So so that's pretty interesting. So more than half of, of the Dutch people are uh, saying that they are not religious. They don't believe in any kind of God. wonder if we're seeing a North Europe trend here. If we look at the survey we can see it's divided actually i'm i'm surprised by those numbers because the biggest religion according to this survey in the netherlands is roman catholicism 24% mm. and i th- i was thinking about no- the netherlands as a more uh, protestant country protestant that's what i yeah, thought yeah yeah so the protestants are just about 15% islam is 5% which is on the highish side, uh, and then others are five percent, and uh, unaffiliated is just above fifty percent. So uh, it's interesting. Don't know what really what it means, but it's a trend that we're seeing in north of Europe. I think. Yeah, yeah. I I actually think I, I might uh, be a little bit, but I thought fifty percent is is um. Low. I thought there's more uh, non-religious people in Netherlands. Well, but, uh, you know, I, we you know, it's, there's a difference between the people who go to church and the people who consider themselves religious. A lot of mm. people, I think, don't go to church but still have a private idea about religion, and they feel that, yeah, I, I don't go to church because I don't, maybe I don't subscribe to the organized religion, but I still have a private conviction that 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 i still cling to and um, i think those are two quite different numbers yeah sure on a very positive note i think although previous note was also quite positive about the non-religious but um this one is even more positive the successful ebola vaccine will be fast-tracked for use very soon Mm. which is very exciting for uh well for people who are under the, the risk of getting Ebola. And as we know, it's a very dangerous disease. Now, the vaccine has been uh, in development for a few years now, uh, as far as we are aware. Um, so it's great, finally, to have something uh, in place that's um, very safe to use and works. The um, trial team included experts from the University of Bern in Germany, um, the University of Florida, London School of Hygiene, um, and tropical medicine and public health England. So it was very much a collaboration of many countries, including lots of European countries and America. And there is a mechanism in place to fast track this uh, vaccine and get it into use within the next, uh, I don't want to lie, but I think in, in the next couple of years. Mm. Yeah, I, I saw that. I saw the news. I think it's quite. Uh... Uh, soon to be, uh, you know, approved. And I was very pleasantly su- surprised by this because I thought, you know, we had 
of course, the the big Ebola epidemic uh, not so long ago, and uh, there was a lot of efforts, but it wasn't making any progress very quickly. And then with the epidemic, you know, fading out, I was thinking, of course, it was very good, but I was thinking, oh, may, maybe the 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 research into the vaccine will will stop because it's no longer such a big problem. But apparently there was um, some uh, very positive things coming out of this. So hopefully the next time uh, the world will be ready for this with with a better vaccine or a vaccine at all because we didn't really have one before. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, There is um, obviously an article published on on the um, world's... um, health organization about this they, they, they've released a statement where you can get all the information about the trial and how many people were was participating and the results were amazing um so in addition to showing high efficiency uh, amongst those vaccinated the trial also shows that unvaccinated people in the rings were indirectly protected from ebola virus uh through the ring uh, vaccination um approach so so-called as we all know herd immunity mm. So, yes, uh, I think great news for 2016. <laughs> yeah, very good. We, <laughs> should, the... <laughs> we should count that. People are saying 2016 was a bad year, and it was in some, some respects, but this was good. And it uh, just goes to show that you uh, there are always something positive coming out as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So watch the space and uh, well done, the researchers and whoever participated. Yeah, go science. Because the Ebola, yeah, because the Ebola co- caused a lot of devastation and uh, death, really. Mm-hmm. So there you go. All right. It seems to be, uh, you know, a little bit of a positive spin to this episode. That's good. I think we've been... Uh, we tried. <laughs> but also the next... Also the next... Uh, a news item is about how new studies show that world IT is consuming not more power, but actually less power than before, even though it's growing. So a couple of years ago, or if you go back five years ago, there was a very growing concern that our growing appetite for IT was also uh, uh, driving energy consumption in the world. But there are two recent studies uh, that indicate that this is not the case. One was by the U.S. Department of Energy that shows, and that study shows that the energy consumption has been staying the same since 2010, even though we are consuming more IT, the energy consumption stays the same. And this Mm -hmm. is because you have bigger and more efficient computer halls, and also you have components that are more power efficient. This was also mirrored by a Swedish study uh, by the Center for Sustainable Communication at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. And this study shows that the use of modern uh, computer screens and other new components are driving down power consumption. And there is also an interesting thing that I hadn't realized or heard about before. There is a trend that big corporations are moving their big server halls. You have these big halls of, of computers. You, yeah. you move them to colder countries, including Sweden and oh. also Denmark. Because that reduces the need to cool the equipment. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's quite okay. obvious when that you think sense. of it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Haven't mm-hmm. thought about that. And f- for yeah. example, Facebook has uh, created two gigantic server halls in the north of Sweden near a city called Luleå. And they, and okay. they have tens of thousands of servers there occupying an area equivalent to eight football fields. And wow. they're basically taking care of all the European Facebook activities. And in the cold really climate up there, it's much easier ke- to keep the server cool mm. and to yeah. have them running at optimum temperature. Uh, other IT corporations like Google, Microsoft, and Amazon is also they're also gathering their servers in in a similar way. It, and apparently, it's also more efficient to have them all in one room. There is economies of scale, and you can, you can also direct cooling more, uh, more efficiently in a big hall like that. So it's interesting. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that cooling is such a uh, problem? Eh? Yeah, yeah. You know, if <laughs> you if go. the ice wasn't melting on the North Pole, I guess we have, would have all our servers there now. <laughs> 
I'm still waiting for some researchers. Um, yeah, um, I'm still waiting for some researchers to come up with idea of how to put ice back into the uh, North Pole. So yeah, yeah, all right, and, and South Pole. <laughs> Because, because uh, of course, we all uh, seen this uh, terrible video of how much ice there is left. Very little, or little, <laughs> little ice. Yeah, yeah, yeah very true. little ice left. Mm. But there you go. Maybe first we'll try to save all the computers, and then we'll save ice. Oh no, that's not the right order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think maybe polar bears should be higher on the I agenda. Know. But I think in Definitely. the world we're living, IT is higher. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And now it became they negative. My, now it became they negative. Have, again. They have all my th- sympathy. Yes. Well, um, I still strongly believe that there is probably some research that is, is go, going on. We need to get on it and get some information. Well, about if this. we can get the polar bears to actually run these facilities in the north, oh. th- then then we'll, they, they will have job security and we would have uh, better um, IT. Yeah. You heard indeed. it here first. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I shall round this up with um, a news. Well, it's not actually news. It's just a, sm- uh, a small reminder to all <laughs> who were not aware of it yet that detoxes don't work. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes. Um, it's as it's it's the, as it's the end of the, of the year. Uh, the holidays are in full swing. Everybody's drinking and uh, having good time, overeating. You know all the wonderful things. And of course, um, the industry of detox is on the rise, particularly in this time of year. I'm sure it's on the rise overall. Um, and as many of you are probably aware, there are things like herbal, vitamin, mineral, and other natural supplements. Various uh, forms of electromagnetic devices are used, colonic irrigation and enemas exciting, various forms of skin bruising, whatever that's supposed to cure, cupping, sauna and other means of of including uh, extensive sweating. I'm talking about Russian saunas. Homeopathy, ear candles, food baths, and it's just the list goes on and on and on. And... um, Countless amount uh, of detox therapies. Uh, one of the bigger uh, underlying things about those uh, therapies that I mentioned, they're very cheap to run uh, and to achieve, but they, they cost a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there was the article published on a website of um, well-known guy, David Wolf. I don't know how many of our listeners know oh, him. The Avocado or, Man, or, yes. The, the, uh, the Avocado Man about how gentle vaccine detox for children and adults uh, can remove heavy metals and other toxins from... Uh, what did you say? Gentle ge- vaccine? Gentle, gentle vaccine detox oh. for children and adults. Because, of course, if you have a vaccine... Okay, once you... So, obviously, he's an anti-vaxxer. But once you had it, let's say, you can still go and detox yourself from, from the, the vaccine ingredients. That you... Because vaccines consist, but this is, this is the quote from the website. Oh uh, whether you believe vaccines to be harmful, harmful or not, one has to admit that all the ingredients added to vaccines cannot be good for anyone, especially children. And so, of course, David Wolf has got a, a detox specially for you. And, um, <laughs> one of the things that he's suggesting is detox, detoxification bath. I'm not going to go into it. It, it involves oil mixtures tang- made up of tangerine, rosemary, geranium, Jupiter berry, of course, because um, that's always great for your detox. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can use garlic, um, probiotics, uh, omega-3. So all these things are good for you if you had a vaccine and you want to detox your body from all the ingredients. And of course, the, the sources that this article is, is quoting are things like Daily Mail. Well, we didn't really know that Daily Mail is a very prolific scientific paper. Peer-reviewed journal, uh, I think. Yeah. Peer-reviewed journal, yeah. But apparently, um, it's been quoted as a very uh, reliable source. Or, for example, another paper called Living Traditionally or uh, Organic Lifestyle Magazine. So it's, you know, all very questionable. But um, the... Truth of the matter is that the therapies that are recommended for detox are very diverse, but yet 
they have one important feature uh, in common. They are not based on any remote, uh, any uh, anything remotely resembling good evidence. Uh, none of them are, are proven to to do anything. <laughs> so um, I'm shocked. Yeah. <laughs> so and although even the experts who are sympathetic to alternative medicine. Um, admit that while there are hundreds of randomized controlled trials on drug and alcohol detox, there are no such trials on detox programs focusing on environmental toxins um, at present. And so detox is certainly more of a sales pitch than a science. Again, clever marketing people, they got it figured out. Whilst there is a total absence of sound evidence for benefits, some of these uh, treatments have been associated with, with risks which depend uh, on the nature of the treatment and can be particularly serious with diets, uh, supplements and colonic irrigation, especially colonic irrigation. I know a little bit more about it because there's somebody who I know kind of used it. And it's very, it could be very dangerous. Yeah. Um, and yet detox is a big business. Uh, a recent survey, um, th- these are the figures I- I've got from America, unfortunately, um, and haven't got any figures from Europe, but uh, it was suggested that 90% of US naturopaths use some form of detox. 90%? 90%, yeah. yeah. I'm wow. not surprised, actually. I-, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe similar kind of per- uh, percentage is used of naturopaths in England is using the same. Mm. But don't get yourself fooled, guys. And the things we have to remember... That we need to ask the, the basic questions when we look at it. Um, what are the toxins and the toxicants? What evidence exists that they damage our health? To begin with, that's a very good question. Mm. How do we qualify, uh, quantify them? How do we diagnose that a patient requires detox and which treatments are effective in eliminating which toxins? And so currently the, there is no sufficient evidence to answer any of these questions. And, um, until the situation changes, we will remain very skeptical about these detoxes indeed. Absolutely. Have yourself a merry little detox. <laughs> <laughs> so it should be a new uh, Christmas song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By Edzard Ernst. I have to say that uh, quite a lot of what I've spoken about was taken from the article published by Edzard Ernst on his website edzardernst.com mm. with a very clever title that I love. Have yourself a merry little detox. So there you go. I have a logical fallacy for today, and it is a sunk cost fallacy, also known as Concord fallacy. Um, So the reasoning that further investment is warranted on the fact that the resources already invested will be lost otherwise, Um, not taking into consideration the overall losses involved in the further investment. So this is a very... Common fallacy, but it's very hard to recognize, especially if you're committing one yourself and you have invested something, a lot of whatever resources, money, time into something. But I want to mention a couple of people that comes to mind and uh, the people that I know are so mostly who came from religion. And then became atheists. So there's um, two people. One one is one of them is ex pastor Ryan Bell, and he actually um, left religion after being <laughs> after spending one g- year without God. That was his experiment. Oh yeah, that was the guy. Yeah, I was yeah, just yeah, I recognized the name. I just was yeah, I mean, who very was interesting. That? Yeah. Um, so he he basically, but the, the the thing of course with with people like Ryan Bell because there's a lot of them who pastors who living f- uh, faith uh, is that the, the whole livelihood depends on what you do so so like if you believe if you're a pastor then this is what you do this is what you get paid for so of course the investment is huge you know the 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 community the the family the money everything else depends on it and so sometimes it's just hard to uh, you know say okay that's it um i don't know actually how much it would apply to brit hermes who we recently had on our show but i can imagine in a way it will um Yes, I think well, it did because uh, but she, on the other, I mean, I think she did a very good thing. She did say, "I've invested all of this time and yeah. money and yeah. my reputation of of doing this, and I realize now that this is wrong." Yeah, yeah. But I think uh, she was one of the exceptions, whereas the yeah. rule mostly probably is like with her ex colleagues who who did invest a lot of time and money, but they still fail to see how. 
after all this investment, whatever they're doing can be wrong. And it is hard. It's very hard to, to realize that and to step, step away from that. Yes, this is one of those, um, fallacies that one does not commit kind of in a, you know, by having conversation, but rather it's like a, you know, something you live through and then you kind of realize it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think just one more thing comes to mind with this uh, is career changes. Mm. Um, especially if you, so not in, in the way that Brit, Brit did it, but, uh, for example, if you spend your, years educating yourself in, in university to be a lawyer and then you decided that you actually completely hate it <laughs> yeah but how many people stay in their careers because of what they've invested in terms of education and money and time all right right So, Pontus, will you tell us about somebody who was really wrong recently? Yes, I, actually, it's not recently. It's something that's been it's someone who's been wrong for a long time. But I think it's still time <laughs> okay. to 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 bring yeah, it up. It's never too late. It's never too late. Yeah. This is about GMO, and uh, GMO has been the target for for Greenpeace for a long time. Mm -hmm. Partly because of this, uh, GMO foods are almost totally banned in the EU. And Greenpeace is against both the technique itself and the business practices of certain GM producing companies, uh, particularly, of course, Monsanto. Although Monsanto is far from the only GM producing company in the world. But there seems to be a, like a, a scapegoat. For they the have been the symbol thing. for what's wrong with, with GMO. So just to be clear from the beginning, GMO is uh, genetically modified organisms where you have uh, changed DNA directly going to the, the DNA of the, of the thing <laughs> to improve certain characteristics. It could be a plant or an animal. Or, or, uh, but in this context, we're talking about making better food for, for humans or for animals. One of the most famous examples is golden rice, which is a special rice developed by, by scientists without actually any commercial interest. Golden rice is developed to provide vitamin A in the rice corns instead of just in the rest of the plants. That is uh, the case with normal rice. But vitamin A deficiency is a big problem in certain countries. So if you can get it into the actual rice corns, then, then you, ha you can help a lot of people. But despite of this, uh, Greenpeace has violent, violently opposed uh, golden rice and going so far as to encourage sabotage uh, of test crops in certain cases. Because of, of this opposition uh, to GMO, uh, 110 Nobel Prize laureates earlier this year wrote a letter to Greenpeace asking them to change their stance on GMO. And they went as far as calling Greenpeace's opposition to golden rice a crime against humanity mm. yeah uh, but that hasn't changed uh, greenpeace's uh position in fact they they took over six weeks only to recognize that there was such a letter and in their response they said that they have never seen this letter despite it was published all over the world and they even made sure to send a fax directly to the head office so instead of recognizing the letter, they have instead doubled down on, on their claims, going so far as to denying that golden rice even exists. Well, the biggest reason that golden rice hasn't been deployed yet is because of Greenpeace opposition. So it's not so they're saying, well, you, you can't find golden rice on the market. No, because you've blocked it all over the world. But GMO has an enormous potential. And we should remember that all food we eat is already modified uh, to suit us better. But by selective breeding, GM only makes this pro process more efficient and more exact by only changing the details that we want to change. And when you've done that, there's no difference in the results. Uh, you know, if you've changed something through selective breeding or you've changed it by modifying the genes, the, the end result, you can't tell the difference. So criticizing the method is, in my opinion, totally wrong because it has nothing to do with the end result. And you can't say that because this is GM modified, it's dangerous somehow, it's artificial somehow. 
it's not good. Does, that doesn't matter. It's the end result that matters. Yeah. So one of the Nobel laureates who signed this letter to Greenpeace uh, called Sir Richard J. Roberts, he received the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1993. He was recently in Stockholm to give a speech, and he's pretty hard on uh, Greenpeace. His assessment is that Greenpeace's opposition is purely ideological and emotional. He also argues that the idea of GMO and Monsanto being evil is actually a big moneymaker for for uh, Greenpeace because it's it's an easy way to invoke emotions and to drive lots of the donations towards Greenpeace. So uh, I think he has a lot of uh, good points and uh, for being absolutely unscientific, which they are when it comes to GMO, Greenpeace gets today's prize for being really wrong. Indeed. Yeah. You agree, Jelena? I agree, yes. I, I, the, 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 I always think of strawberries, apples and other fruits and vegetables that we eat every day. They've all been modified. Yeah, there's no such thing as none a natural the, strawberry, for instance. None of them were ever naturally found in the wild forests of first century or something silly like that yeah you know even even a common thing like apples That's you exactly, know a, yeah. a, a wild apple apples, yeah. is pretty small and sour and not very good for food uh, yeah. so it has been modified and bananas of course we can't uh, of course forget bananas but somehow those especially if you slap organic next to bananas apples and strawberries some, somehow those become okay yeah and then it's very strange gold golden very rice strange. isn't yeah. Yeah. Agree. So I, I think that, you know, uh, we could, we do need GMO going forward to, to feed the yeah. world. And Absolutely. Opposing and opposing it is just, uh, it's actually, well, I don't know if it's a it's crime dangerous. against humanity, but it's, mm. it's really a, a very, well, bad thing to do. Yeah. Um, and I think you've touched on something that we'll talk Again, about again and again, and it's appealing to people's emotions, and that's what they respond to the most. And so Greenpeace is just doing just that, and of course, doing it very successfully. Mm. You know, evil corporations, mm. blah blah yeah, blah, all this sure. kind of thing. And it's also the natural fallacy, of course. Uh, speaking mm -hmm. of logical fallacies, you know, just because something is natural, it's better than. But there's no such logic, really. You know, natural things can be really bad. And and artificial things can be very good. It doesn't have to be very good because it's artificial, but it has nothing to do with it. You know, things are good or bad. It doesn't matter how they became what they are. Indeed. Um. Yeah. Hot topic still, isn't it? Yeah. And and I, I should say also that I do sympathize with some of the things that Greenpeace is doing. So, well, I want to like them, but yeah. because of things like that, yeah. it's very... Yeah, I even met a Greenpeace person on, on the street a couple of years ago, and he was handing out pamphlets, and we talked a bit. And uh, this person said, oh, so, oh, you're really interested, so why don't you become a member? And I said, well, I will not become a member until you change your stance on GMO. And the person just looked at me cheapishly and said, yeah, I know. <laughs> So, <laughs> uh, so I wonder if he was also on the right side of the fence. But just, he, he, you know. he knew, but he was still very disappointed that I didn't want to become a member. Mm. There we go. I think that's it for today, and there's only one thing for me left to do, and it's uh, to finish the show with a quote. And I want to finish it with the quote from Leonardo da Vinci, mm. who was an Italian polymath whose areas of interest include everything. <laughs> Invention, painting, sculpting, architecture, sign. He was like a genius, wasn't yeah. he? Um, so I'm told. He said, the acquisition of knowledge is always of use to the intellect because it may thus drive out useless things and retain the good. Uh, for nothing can be loved or hated unless it is first known. Ah, well there said. We I didn't know that. I hadn't um, heard that quote before. It's very good. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's acquire knowledge. Let's use it wisely. And yeah. And be happy. 
Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that... Actually, yeah, I don't know the, the, about the happy, but anyways. No. But it does tie back to the really wrong. Uh, unless you understand what it is intellectually, yeah. you yeah. cannot decide whether it's good or bad. So try to understand things first and then then make up your mind. Yeah. So that's, um, that's it, really. Um... We're going to be back next week with Andres, uh, full team, back in action. And um, But until then, have a good week, everyone, and see you later. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments and death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might be of interest to others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, Please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Crabb, and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.vesp.eu. Follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at espodcast underscore eu. And like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can I'll start again. For fuck's sake. <laughs> Just leave it and do something else. Oops. That's my cat. Attacking, attacking one of my shelves. Okay. Who's winning? The um, shelf or the cat? I don't know, don't know yet. No. But don't hit the okay. microphone, please. I know, I know. Bloody thing. <laughs>